Amen. Well, friends, if you don't know me, I'm Pastor Gordon. Welcome. We're working through the Gospel of John together, and so if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open it or turn it on, scroll to page 2, John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. And admittedly this morning, as you might have been able to tell just by listening to the Word of God, we have a somewhat difficult passage before us, but it is good to acknowledge that all of God's Word is good, it's for our encouragement, it can point us to Christ, it can turn us back from our wicked ways. God gives us his word for our good. The main theme of today's passage, the main idea, is that a heart in love with its own glory is unyielding to the gospel of grace. The main idea is that a heart in love with its own glory is unyielding to the gospel of grace. The Puritans, which were an English reforming group of Protestants, had a saying. They said, the same sun that melts the butter also hardens the clay. What they meant was that the glory of God which if you were here last week, we saw so wondrously displayed in the work of his cross. And just as an aside here, if after this message today you need some encouragement, go back and listen to that one. Don't let this message and all that last message. The same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. What they meant was that the glory of God can have seemingly contradictory effects depending on the heart of the person who sees it. Some people, when they see the glory of God, it hardens them. And for some, it softens them. So in this passage, we're talking about hardening and the heart. We're talking at least a little bit about how and why hearts respond the way they do to God's grace. So we're going to work through this passage. It's probably not as uh, structured as I'd like it to be. I struggled in developing this message. Hopefully it still makes sense as we go through it. The first idea that I want to talk about is that God sovereignly and justly hardens unrepentant sinners to his grace. God sovereignly and justly hardens unrepentant sinners to his grace. Look at verse 36. I have to, for some of us, we'll have to look past the uh, title because this th verse 36 is pretty long in your Bible. So while you have the light, Jesus said, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed, and he hid himself from them. Now, John, as we know, as we're working through the gospel, oftentimes speaks in double entendre, meaning he has two meanings at least to any given thing that he says, and here is no different. He says this, meaning John says this about Jesus, meaning two things. One, literally, Jesus physically removed himself from their presence. 
he left them. He left the room. They couldn't see him. But he also means it in a figurative or a spiritual sense. He concealed himself from their spiritual senses. Now, we know that not because that's just a clever imagination of what John might say. We're going to see that played out. John need only have said, when he had said this, Jesus left. If he wanted us to understand that the scene was changing, that we were, we were shifting to a new subject, all he needed to tell us is, when he said this, Jesus left. But instead, he says, Jesus hid himself from them. And we can imagine a number of ways where someone might hide themselves from someone else. Saul, for instance, as you may remember, hides himself from the people because he's afraid of them. He doesn't want to be made king. He's frightened about the public ceremony. And Jesus is not afraid of the crowd. He's not hiding himself from them because he's concerned about what they'll do. Instead, he hid himself from them. He deliberately prevented the crowds from seeing him. Why? Well, in one sense, Jesus' departure is a kind of judgment. He judicially deprived them of further opportunity for faithful obedience. Why? Because their unbelief was unjustified and persistent. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. The book of John is sometimes... The book of John is sometimes... The way commentators will break it up, sometimes they'll talk about the book of signs, the first part of the Gospel of John, where we see, and different commentators argue over how many, but usually there's seven signs. And we can think of a lot of them, right? Turn water into wine. He healed a man born blind. He raised up a lame beggar. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. He makes a dead man, dead for three days, come to life. These are just some of the signs that Jesus has shown them. It says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. It was, therefore, persistent. And it was unjustified because it did not result because of any deficiency in Jesus. In other words, we might have looked at that and said, well, Jesus just didn't do good enough signs. Or he didn't do enough of them. Or, or the way that he did them was obscure. No, no, John is saying he didn't not do enough signs. He did plenty. And it wasn't as though they weren't wonderful. They were marvelous. And it wasn't as though they weren't public. No, Jesus didn't fail in presenting sufficient proofs of his authority or his authenticity, though he had done so many signs. So it's unjustified. Their unbelief is unjustified. And it was persistent because it endured despite the many opportunities. Though he had done so many, still they did not believe in him. The fault for the Jews' unbelief clearly in this text lies with them and not in Jesus. It is not Jesus' fault that they did not believe. However, this unbelief, if it is unexpected... And for most of the early world, it certainly was. 
Why would the Jews not receive their Messiah? And even for us, we sit there, we, we often say, like, well, if Jesus would just come to my town and call someone who had been dead for three days out of the tomb, I'm pretty sure people would believe in him. But the truth, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't varnish the truth, the truth is much more perplexing. This response is unexpected. This response is perplexing to us, but it is not perplexing to God. John says that the people's unbelief fulfills God's word to Isaiah. Any of us know chapter, Isaiah chapter 53 almost by heart. If you look in verse 38, you'll see a piece of it. It says, so the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is biblical language. This is a way of saying that even though Jesus graciously and publicly displayed his power, so the arm of the Lord is the power of the Lord. It's, it, as it were, he flexes in front of all the people, right? And so Isaiah is saying, even though they saw God display his power openly, who believed? Who listened? It means that even though Jesus faithfully related all of God's words and commands, we have heard him say, only what I've heard from the Father have I told to you, and everything that I've heard from the Father I've told to you. He didn't hold back a single piece of the evidence that we needed in order to come to him. So despite the fact that he displayed God's power and told us what God said, yet they persisted in unbelief. But John takes us deeper. It's not enough to just describe the situation. And so now you see that John is associating the way that the ancient Jews responded to Isaiah's message, right? So back when Isaiah spoke, who has listened to our report? He's not only speaking about Christ. He says, I have testified for my whole entire life to a people, and they haven't listened to me. And even though God has displayed his power amongst those people, they haven't listened to him. So John ties the ancient Jews' disbelief or unbelief with the contemporary Jews' unbelief. He pairs God's judicial curse in Isaiah 6 then with Jesus' judicial withdrawal. He shows you now that Jesus stepping away from the crowd is not just leaving them, it's an act of judgment. He is depriving the crowd of any further opportunity to witness the power and the word of God. He's doing exactly what he warned them in verses 35 and 36. So look back, let your eyes go back to verse 35. Jesus warns them, while you have the light, believe in the light. He, he, put, he told them, there's a ticking time bomb. There will be a time when you don't have the light anymore. And you never know when that is, whether it's going to be one verse from the last or whether it's going to be years from the time that you hear that. There is no promise in God's grace that just because you hear his invitation to repent in this moment, that he won't silence that invitation the next. So now look at verses 39 through 40. So while you have the light, believe in the light. Now look, 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he, and that is God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart 
lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, friends, it is not as though God hardened the hearts of otherwise morally upright or indifferent persons. We must not mistake this. It is not as though God is now causing some to stumble who might otherwise have repented. We often want to think that way. We often want to think, no, no, you, you didn't see the end of the story, God. Who knows? They, they might have changed their mind. Wouldn't you, shouldn't you have waited just a little bit longer? It is never the case that someone who comes to God seeking his mercy is turned away. That never ever happens. God is not walling up his grace against crowds of repentant, pleading sinners. It is not as though God has a safe room that only holds so many, and he's closed the door and locked it despite the fact that people are clawing at it. The truth is much harder than that. It's that God has left his safe room open. The doors are wide. But no one wants to go in. And this is because, apart from God's gracious intervention, and as a consequence of our sinful nature, all human beings, Pastor Gordon included, will of their own accord freely resist God and reject his grace and truth. Romans 3, 9 through 12 spells out this indictment. Paul says, none is righteous means no one of us has right standing with God. No, not one. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. And some of you might say, but I, I, I'm seeking for God in my heart. We'll come for that. But in and of yourself, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, he says. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So friends, what we need to see here is that God's decision to harden sinners against his grace is never unjust. It is never unjust. Indeed, God, if he were to be utterly just, would condemn every sinner to eternal conscious punishment apart from him. Because human beings, without God's intervention, do not seek him out and do not accept the grace that he offers. We want salvation on our own terms. We want things our way. We want them at our time. And aside, if you've ever heard the expression, and some of you have, if you've studied systematic theology, you might have heard of irresistible grace. The expression does not mean that God's grace cannot be resisted. It does sound like that, I know. But it doesn't mean that God's grace can't be resisted. Stephen, when he's speaking in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, speaking to the Pharisees and to the Sanhedrin, he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. It's not impossible to resist the grace of God. Instead, the doctrine of irresistible grace means that when God chooses, he is able to and graciously overcomes our resistance. 
So what John is describing here is what we call judicial hardening. It is a hardening brought about by God as the just consequence of a human's willful and persistent resistance to and rejection of God's words and power. Look at verse 39. It says, therefore, they could not believe. They would not, and therefore they could not. That they could not believe was the moral consequence of their persistent unbelief. God passed judgment on their unbelief in such a way that he rightly deprived them of any further opportunity to repent. So I want to draw out a few observations about this hardening that we need to see here. First, this is a judicial hardening. That means it's a judgment. That means it's based on something that hap that's happened. It says it is deserved. We, we should not ever entertain the idea that what God has done here is not deserved by those that's, that are under it. It is deserved by our nature. It is deserved by what we've done. It's deserved by our choices. Friend, is there a single one person, there's not a single person in here who has woken up every single morning and for the whole entirety of that day loved the Lord, the God, the only God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because he is infinitely deserving of our infinite praise, we have fallen short of him. We deserve his just condemnation. So secondly, this is a judicial hardening, but it's a real hardening. I had a professor once, it was a bit of a shock, because I grew up in, uh, I don't know whether this was always the case in school, but it seems as though it suddenly came about in my days of school where all of a sudden, extra credit showed up a lot more often, and papers could be received later and later, and there always seemed to be a way to get the paper in. And I remember we had one teacher in high school who uh, is, had a great name, Mr. Posthumus. Um, <laughs> I love the man. I mean, he was a sweet teacher. But Mr. Posthumus would not receive a paper after the due date. You could cajole that man. You could beg that man. You could give him a new pony. I, you know, you just say, thank you for the pony, and your paper's an F. <laughs> like, you, you would never get the paper in. And, and kids, having grown up accustomed to, like, there's always some way around this limitation, would get very angry with him. I remember hearing a, a girl just lay into him that this was unfair, unkind, and unloving, unchristian even, that he would not admit of a paper after the date that he had told you was due. It was in your curriculum. He told it to you. He reminded you. The week before it was due, every day he would tell you, and yet somehow we would conclude there must be some way around this. And I don't want you to look at this and conclude there is some way around this hardening. This is a real hardening. It renders sinners incapable of turning back from their sin. Friends, it is a wonderful and a dangerous thing to come to church. It is a wonderful thing because in the church you will hear the means of grace. You'll hear the word of God. You will hear God call you to himself. It is a dangerous thing because if you continually and persistently ignore what you hear, 
if you push back continually against the means of grace, you will harden under them. The very instruments of God's deliverance, God's word and God's power, the sweet songs that we sing, the fellowship that we enjoy can become by practiced ignorance the evidence and the occasion of our destruction. Thirdly, this is not a universal hardening. So it's judicial, it's real, but it's not universal. We know there are exceptions to this. We know that Peter is a Jew, but he is not hardened. Mary is a Jew, but she is not hardened. Lazarus is a Jew, but she is not hardened. So it's not a universal hardening. This is, though, a providential hardening. If in one sense God's hardening looks back on past unbelief, it also looks forward to a great deliverance. In other words, there's something much bigger going on here than what we can see. We don't have time today, but if you were to go this week and study Romans 9 through 11, you would see that in God's grace, his hardening of the Jews brought Pastor Gordon, brought you, brought probably most everyone that calls on the name of Christ in this room. Your faith is a result of God's judicial hardening of the Jews. You can praise God for acting in justice. You can praise God for gathering you in through the hardening that God has exercised rightly on those who resist his grace. And, fi- and fifth, this idea that God hardens the unbelief of son while drawing others into saving faith and obedience. Friends, this is, I'm not cherry picking this passage. This is neither uncommon nor is it unclear. Every synoptic gospel quotes this passage to prove this point. Luke chapter 8 verses 9 through 10 says, and when his disciples asked him, that is Jesus, what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Or in Matthew 13, 10 through 11, and 13 through 14, also in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, they say the same. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Friends, we know that the parables are these ordinary stories given to demonstrate an unordinary point or an extraordinary point. We often look at them and we think, wow, these really simple stories help us understand Jesus so well. Friend, the only reason that that simple story helps you to see Jesus is because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart. Because otherwise, those stories are opaque and even offensive. They turn the heart away as opposed to turning it toward. Finally, Paul, when he speaks in Acts chapter 28, verses 24 through 25, says, some were convinced by what he said. He's arguing with the Sanhedrin, but others disbelieved. So Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. This is the go-to passage in the New Testament to explain the perplexing reality of unbelief. Why do so many people not believe? The answer is their hearts are hard 
and God has given them over to their hard hearts. So friends, this means that while God is sovereign over unbelief, human beings are morally responsible for their unbelief. Both things are true. And it also means that the problem of unbelief, much as we want to point and say, it's this thing that's outside of me. Jesus didn't do enough signs. He didn't do enough signs in my day. He hasn't answered the prayers that I've given. His word is clear, but it's not clear where I want it to be clear. It it should have been more clear here. We we can come up with a hundred reasons why we think that Jesus needs to do something more in order for us to believe him. But the truth is that the problem with unbelief is not outside of us, it's inside of us. The problem of unbelief is rooted deep in our hearts. So the next main idea that I want to touch on is that the root of unbelief is a corrupt heart, blind to God's glory. This is where we're getting the main theme of a heart in love with its own glory is unyielding to the gospel of grace. So look at verse 41. And notice, Isaiah said these things, why? Because he saw his glory, that's God's glory, and he spoke of him. So what becomes clear right there is that we have two different reactions to the same set of circumstances. The same reality, the same revelation provokes opposing reactions. And Pastor John helped me think of a good example because I didn't have a good one. Imagine this year if, well, I shouldn't even say if, right? When Ohio State wins the national championship. You see, see, I can see people already. There's a few of you. There's some, many of you for whom this would be the wonderful news. This would be gospel. And there's a few of you. I can, it's okay. I can see you for whom this would be terrible news. For Michigan fans, this would be terrible news. <laughs> for Ohio State fans, it would be fantastic news. Do you see how the same reality, though, can provoke very different reactions. The good news, even though it is objectively good news, does not always produce a joyful response. Why is that? Why why does Isaiah see the glory of God and want to be drawn near to God? And why does Caiaphas see the glory of God, and want nothing to do with it. Want to put Lazarus to death because the sign of God's grace and glory, him healing a man dead, is so offensive to Caiaphas' heart, he would rather kill that man than come to God. How can the same reality produce and provoke these different reactions? In some Miracles provoke a deep disquiet, a wicked distrust. But in other cases, it creates a radical soul-transforming and soul-satisfying repentance and faith. So John tells us why. Look at verse 42 through 43. Nevertheless, he says, many even of the authorities believed in him. But before you get all excited by the word belief, oh, good, all right, many, many authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why? For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I know it's a long road to get there, but now we got there, right? This is the real root of unbelief. It isn't that he didn't do enough signs. It isn't that he didn't have big enough crowds. He could have done anything. 
He could have displayed himself in his full glory. Remember back in John 6 where we talked about this? Jesus said, if, I, if you were to see the Son of Man coming in glory, it wouldn't have the intended effect. Because the reason why many Jews, the reason why we today harden our hearts against God's grace, the chief danger is because we are in love with another glory. We are more concerned about what we have or what others think than God. We have a heart that is in love with its own glory and such a heart is unyielding to the gospel of grace. So I wanna take some time now to diagnose some common symptoms of a heart in love with its lesser glories and then prescribe some remedies. I'm imitating Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones here even though he's much better at it than I ever could hope to be. The first symptom that we see in this text is that private friendship without public confession is not true discipleship. The first symptom is that private friendship without public confession is not true discipleship. One symptom of a heart that's in love with some lesser glory is unwillingness to make a public confession of faith. It's an unwillingness ultimately to be associated publicly with Jesus. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They didn't say it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If you've ever had a friend who's been betrayed or attacked, maybe at work or in the public sphere, it's nice to say to them, to go to them privately and to say, hey man, I, I love you, I'm with you, I'm praying for you, this is super hard, but I, I think you're in the right. But it's a whole nother matter. It means much more if we're willing to publicly identify with them. If, if when the news reporters are showing up and say, you know, you did this thing, then when we stand up and we say, no, I know that person, I'm with that person. That's the scandal of Jesus and the cross. To confess publicly in such a way that other people know at school, at work, in your family, that you are a disciple of that Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I wish that I were both more courageous and more godly than I am. I can think of numerous times in my life where whether for the sake of convenience or because I'm, I'm, not, I'm socially bashful, I'm an introvert, you know, I get on a plane, what I want to do is put in my headphones and just pretend that the rest of the world doesn't exist. I don't want to have a long conversation with you about what is ever going on in your life because I'm never going to see you again. Like, that's my instinct. <laughs> And deep down, I know that if I have my Bible open and I'm working on the sermon, that the person that sits down next to me is going to have an occasion to have one of those conversations. And then, because it's about Jesus, I definitely need to talk to them. Because, you know, it's one thing if I just don't want to talk to them as an introvert. It's another thing if I don't want to talk to them as a pastor. And I wish I could tell you that as a consequence, I boldly and readily and always laid open my Bible. And when a person sat down next to me and said, what do you do? I didn't say, like, oh, I'm a shepherd. <laughs> You know, I, I am a person of faith who helps other people with their faith. <laughs> I study a really good book. Are you unwilling to make a public confession? 
And those ones are small. I mean, it matters what we do on the airplane. That matters. But the trajectory of your life, will you tell other people that Jesus is your Lord? And if you won't, why won't you? Some of us, we're just afraid of talking in front of other people. I understand it. Maybe it's because you're actually ashamed of Christ. Or maybe it's because you're afraid for your career. Or maybe you're afraid for your popularity. If I, if I say that I'm a Christian, there's no way I'm going to make it through high school in one piece. Maybe you're afraid of losing influence. Oh, if I confess Christ, then my, my channel's going to drop. My website hits are going to go down. I, I'm not going to be able to make it in this world as an open and honest Christian. Some of us may be in love with the spirit of the age. And the spirit of our age is a spirit of continual and unrelenting doubt and uncertainty that prizes uncertainty, that says certainty by itself and by its very nature is wicked. You shouldn't arrive at a conclusion and hold to it. Just to always be doubting. It looks down its nose at confession. It looks down at sure faith. And maybe we are enticed by that. Is our hesitancy because we love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God? Because in Matthew 10, 32 through 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And we know that this doesn't land on just one single instance. Peter denied Christ three times in front of men publicly. But the overall trajectory of his life is that he came into obedience to the gospel and ultimately he confesses Christ and dies for that confession. So don't be afraid that if in one moment you have fallen short of the commands of Christ, that, that's our, our gospel assurance doesn't rise or fall on our immediate obedience. But over the course of our life, real gospel assurance produces real gospel obedience. That's why Romans says, in order to be saved, you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Some of us need to work on that side. <laughs> and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make known your allegiance and your submission to Jesus. It's important that we take actual deliberate steps to combat spiritual cowardice because as we gain power, wealth, and influence, those things become obstacles to our faith. This is the second diagnostic tool. Power and wealth impede an honest confession. You see, the more that you have of wealth, of fame, power, or influence, the harder it becomes to confess Christ publicly because the more you think you have to lose. This is why Jesus says, and Unlike many liberal commentators, I simply don't think Jesus is trying to make a very complicated statement here. He says, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples say, well, then it must be impossible. And Jesus says, yes. Yes, it's impossible for a man. You can't, as a wealthy person, just as a wealthy person, get into the kingdom of heaven. You can't. Because it's impossible with man. It can only be done by God. God must overcome those other impediments in your life. Some of us love the glory that comes from our Facebook page. Some of us love the glory that comes from our Twitter account, our Instagram handle, more than we love God's. 
Some of us will sell out what we have been taught our whole entire life because one person who impresses us says otherwise. Some of us will be too ashamed by society's disdain to live in pursuit of Christ's reward. Some of us will feel pressure at work to bow to a secular ideology. Now, I'm not saying that the way to follow Christ is to be rude, brash, loud, and offensive. And it could sound like that way. No, we, we can take cues from Daniel, who lived wisely in a completely pagan society without compromising his integrity. They had to ferret out the fact that he prayed three times a day to his God. But they did. And when they did, he didn't stop because they did. I think we understand the pressures that these leaders faced. I don't think that we should turn down our nose at them. Sometimes we don't say anything in the meeting. Sometimes we don't speak up at school. Sometimes we don't share our faith. Or we speak in vague terms. I'm a spiritual person. I take my faith seriously. Reluctant to say, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. Because I am a Christian. Because he is my Lord. Because he is my Savior. Because he is everything to me. Calvin puts it well. He says, can anything be more foolish, or rather, can anything be more beastly than to prefer the silly applauses of men to the judgment of God? Or he goes on, he says, we must also notice that rulers have less courage and constancy because ambition almost always reigns in them. And there is nothing more servile than that. To put in a word, earthly honors may be called golden shackles. Binding a man up so he cannot freely do his duty. Proverbs 29, 25 says this. It reminds us that the fear of man will prove a snare. It is harder to stand up for Christ the higher up you go. It doesn't mean that you can't go up. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't go up. May God prosper it that godly men inherit wealth and use it rightly. May God prosper it that godly men inherit influence and use it rightly. May God prosper it that many of us will stand in places of public prominence, but that God will use it to display his great glory. Because while it doesn't mean that you shouldn't go up or you can't go up, the higher up you go in this world, the harder it is to stand for Christ. And the question is, on the last day, will you be found faithful in the sight of God? You can tell what you love by what you're afraid to lose. It's not wrong to, be, to want to be comfortable. It's not wrong to want to be socially accepted or successful. But those desires have the capacity baked into them to undermine and eventually compromise your love for Christ. The longer you give in to them, the more your spiritual health will be in jeopardy. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil want to obscure your view of God's glory. They know, in a sense, that 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that it is as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look at the glory of God, that we are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. They know this. Because seeing and savoring the glory of God softens the human heart. And fires it with faith. That is why the devil in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, quote, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Because there is something about what Isaiah saw. Because there is something about what Peter saw, what Mary saw, what Lazarus saw. There is something about seeing the glory of God that is able to overcome our resistance to his grace. So we have to ask, if you come to this point in the passage, what did Isaiah see? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Friends, we don't believe because we harden our hearts against God. We harden our hearts against God because we love lesser glories. And we love lesser glories because our hearts haven't been changed. Because we haven't been touched, as it were, by the coal from the altar. Because we haven't been touched by God's atoning and cleansing grace. So briefly, I know my time is spent, we have to point out three remedies and some practical steps for keeping a soft and believing heart. If we were to look at how verse 40 in this passage uses Isaiah 6, and if you were to look at it in sort of a reflection, you can actually see God's blessing through faith. So he's quoting Isaiah 6 in a form of cursing, right? Hardening the heart. But if you reverse it, if you look in its reflection, you can actually see the pathway to grace. First, Real faith requires a new heart. Because he says that he's going to prevent them, lest they understand with their heart. So, real faith requires a new heart. The thing, the thing that distinguished Mary, Peter, and Lazarus from someone like Caiaphas wasn't that Caiaphas was rich and they weren't. Mary was rich. No, it wasn't wealth, it wasn't status, it wasn't intelligence. It was a new heart. It was the gift of God's grace. Friend, plead with God to give you a new heart to see his grace. If his grace doesn't appear beautiful to you, take the moment and ask him, change my heart. Let me see you. Let me see your glory. Secondly, real faith always produces real repentance. Real faith always produces real repentance. He says, lest they turn, right? lest they understand and lest they turn. You can always mark real faith because it always produces genuine, sometimes sudden, sometimes slow. Mine is typically very slow, but I trust that it's real. You can ask my wife. Real faith always puts forth real fruit. 
Only a soft and believing heart discovers the joy of God's mercy and grace. Thirdly, real faith comes from seeing, savoring, and confessing God's glory and grace. It says, because Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw his glory and he spoke of him. If we're going to cultivate a soft and believing heart, we need to put ourselves in the pathway of his grace. I love the story about Isaiah because he goes to the temple King Uzziah dies, and as you know, Isaiah, Uzziah dies under the judgment of God, and he was the long, one of the longest-lived monarchs of Israel. He did most of the things that a king should do for Israel, but Isaiah goes to the temple. He puts himself, as it were, in the pathway of God's grace. What are some practical steps for doing that? Well, one, we should pray for a new heart. Robert Murray Machane said, when a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. Pray urgently, pray steadfastly, pray without ceasing, pray Moses' prayer, show me your glory, ask God to help you. Secondly, repent of sin and depend on God's help. Some of us are harboring the idea that our sins can just continue on unnoticed in the overall picture of our faithful obedience. But Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. And Colossians 3.5 says, put to death that which is earthly in you. So pray for a new heart. Repent of sin. Depend on God's help. Thirdly, behold the glory of God. Study his word. Listen to sound preaching. Reflect on his nature. Read the writings of old and wise saints. Sing songs in your heart to God. Place yourself in the pathway of God's grace. It might sound silly, but join a small group. Come to the studies. Gather with the men. Gather with the women. Gather together as a church. Don't avoid the gathering of the Lord's day. Submit to the ordinary means of grace that God has provided. Let them nourish your soul. And then confess your faith. Make a point of sharing your faith. Not just with those who don't know. Tell them to your family. Tell it to your children. Tell it to your friends. This thing that is the most important thing to you in all your life, don't fail to make it come out of your mouth and say, you know, friend, this week Christ encouraged me in this way. Or this week I was re remembering how Christ did this or said that. I am lifted up by Christ. Confess your faith. And finally, love God. That means be vulnerable to the grace of God. Make yourself vulnerable to his grace. C.S. Lewis writes in The Four Loves saying, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. So friend, hard one today, but a good word from the Lord. In the end, remember that a heart that is in love with its own glory is unyielding to the gospel of grace. So I plead with you, 
Do not harden your heart. Now is the time of salvation. Don't harden your heart. God has not walled up his grace against you. God has not closed the door against you. Come in now. Confess Christ now. Don't wait. Step out into the sunshine of God's grace and let the warmth of his love in his Christ soften your heart to his. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy. God, have mercy on we weak, poor, feeble sinners. Remember that we are dust and that our hearts are stony. Shine on us with the light of your pure grace. Do not deprive your spirit from us. Do not take away your word from us. Do not take away your grace, but instead prevail upon us. Oh God, overcome our resistance by your glorious grace. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. Turn us back from the way of wickedness so that we would be satisfied in the glorious grace of your son. Don't do this because we deserve it, Father, for we surely do not. Do this, we beg, for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.